0: Uh, Hello, everybody. I am uh, here today with uh, uh, Dr. Susan Brand uh, to talk uh, with, to discuss with her about uh, her uh, uh, book, Women Healers Gender, Authority and Medicine in Early Philadelphia, published uh, by uh, the University of Pennsylvania uh, Press in 2022. Dr. Brandt uh, teaches history at uh, the University of uh, Colorado at Colorado Springs. Uh, she received her undergraduate degree from uh, Duke University and her Ph- PhD in history from Temple uh, University and uh, uh, her uh, dissertation on women healers was awarded in 2016 uh, the, the 2016 Learner scott prize from the be- uh, for the best doctoral dissertation in us women's history by the organization of american historians so i'm really excited to be here today with dr Brandon to discuss with her about uh, about uh, her uh, wonderful book. So thank you so much, Dr. Brandt, for accepting this uh, invitation. And uh, um, so I would like, in the first place, uh, to uh, would like to begin with a uh, standard uh, questions. So. Uh, Can you tell our listeners uh, what brought you to choose uh, to work on women healers in early Philadelphia? Because this looks uh, like a particularly challenging topic for a historian, as you point out in the introduction of your work, to the lack of exploitable uh, exploitable, uh, sources.
1: Uh, Yes. Thank you for that question. And of course, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, And you are right. It really was very challenging, uh, very challenging research. And um, I didn't intend to write my dissertation on women healers when I started on a second career in history after my first profession as a nurse practitioner. I was interested in the intersections of gender and politics, um, and even in Jürgen Habermas's concept of the public sphere that you've written on. But, um, of course, as we know with COVID, um, healthcare is certainly very intertwined with politics. So when Susan Klepp, my dissertation advisor, introduced me to Elizabeth Coates-Pascal's medical recipe manuscript with my background in healthcare, I was really hooked on um, doing a a more medically oriented dissertation. and just to tell you about some of the, one of the important sources that I use are women's medical recipe books. And um, the one that my advisor showed me was written by Elizabeth Coates Pascal, who was a merchant and healer in mid-18th century Philadelphia. She was a widow, which often uh, women who were widowed would um, practice medicine along with other along with her many other identities um and she kept a really detailed discursive medical recipe books and women's recipe books um were household manuals. A lot of families kept these. And as I was doing my research, I found that some women um, focused on medicine. And that was a clue to me of either an interest in domestic medicine or possibly um, uh, a, a practice outside of the household. And um, if you don't up, viewers have access to the cover of my book. Uh, you can see there's a recipe book there at the bottom of the 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 picture, kind of the, uh, there's a a still life of of various objects that actually are from around my home. So this is a woman's recipe book that I have in my possessions by a a Quaker woman named Sarah Wall. So you can see what those manuscripts look like. Often they were a blank book um, with a cover either um, of leather or some were just really beautifully embossed for more wealthy women. Um, And women would write down household cooking or medical recipes. Um, and along with her business uh, business receipt book. Um This recipe book is the only writings that we have that are extant from this woman named Elizabeth Coates Paschal. So recipe books become a really important source uh, of information about women's healing. And some recipe books offer only a very straightforward uh, uh, details of the recipes, ingredients, um, their preparation and how to administer them. Um, But some, again, are particularly detailed. Um, And historians have found that recipe books can provide really important insights into ways that medical knowledge was collected, recorded, annotated, and passed down through generations of family members. And um, if I may, I'd like to read, I have um, a copy of the recipe book here. I'd like to read an excerpt from the book so that listeners can get a sense of uh, what these manuscripts are like. Um, This is a full page entry, um, and I'm just going to read part of it because it's actually a little bit long. It's titled, For Consumption. and again, Often these recipe books had um, a title or were often uh, put into sections, Um, and consumption in in our world would be something like tuberculosis, lung cancer, or other wasting lung disease. It wasn't even um, specifically TB, but a very serious wasting illness. So here's what Pascal says. Take blackberry briar roots, the upright sort, not the creeping dewberry, and sassafras roots and white beech bark each half a bushel and boil it for four or five hours in a sufficient quantity of spring water till it's reduced to 10 gallons. Put in a half a gallon molasses, brew it up with yeast and let it work and then bottle it." And again, she's really fermenting it here. My friend, Nathaniel Thomas, perfectly cured a man who was brought so low as to keep to his bed. I gave the receipt of this to a Jersey Indian man of about 50 years who was in consumption. While I was dosing him to it, a woman that was well-dressed and seemed like a person of credit commended this highly and said that a young woman in her neighborhood was cured of a consumption by the same drink when she had been given over his past recovery. In a few months, the son came looking for me at my house and gave thanks for what I had done for his father, who was cured Within a month, um, and again, this um, this entry is 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 more you know more detailed than many, but I think you get a sense of the chains of information sharing that uh, healers were part of, um, and this Jersey Indian man um, was likely was was a Lenape, or sometimes they're called Delaware, was a Delaware man, um, possibly from there were um, kind of reservations in in New Jersey across the river from Philadelphia, um, and I. Ironically, here... Pascal is using standard Lenape botanicals to treat uh, a Lenape man. So, again, uh, they're kind of these longer chains of information sharing where Europeans have sort of created their own hybrid uh, healing cultures and are exchanging between cultures. Um, It also suggests that Pascal saw patients in her shop on Market Street, which would have been the first floor of her home. So, she was sort of um, putting together medicine and mercantile. um, this was just one of 167 entries in her book so this gives you a sense of of the extensiveness of what what we can learn from pascal um, and so after I read pascal's descriptions of her remedies and patient encounters after my dissertation advisor handed this to me my mind strayed back to the 1980s when I worked in a clinic in a medically underserved area in the mountains of North Carolina um, and i remembered meeting lay healers and granny midwives who shared their cultures of lay healing and self-help medicine. Um, and they described their family medical recipe, recipe books that had been collected, curated, and passed down from mother to daughter through generations. And. Um, even though I was ostensibly the healthcare expert, I was, of course, in my 20s and just kind of, you know, finding my feet. These practitioners offered me medical advice. They gave me recipes for teas, you know, healing teas uh, with yellow root, uh, ginseng, Solomon's seal, they call the ginseng sang. Um, and I knew at the time I should be recording these important oral histories, but I was distracted by the demands of work and family. And when I opened Pascal's Medical Recipe, book, I remember these exchanges with these women healers in North Carolina, and I realized I could honor them by writing a history of women healers. Um, and at the time, I also lived near the lands of the Eastern Band of the Cherokees, and when I visited their new museum in the 1980s, I could see that the Cherokees were really focused on preserving their unique cultures, uh, which included a culture of holistic healing that um, encompasses both personal wellness and also uh, the community's spiritual well-being. So so these ex- experiences did inform my interest in the dissertation topic. Um, as I began the dissertation research, I remembered reading Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, A Midwife's Tale, The Life of Martha Ballard, which um, if people are in, you know interested in women healers, they're probably familiar with this 1991 book. Um, and through these really painstaking investigations, um, Ulrich brought her this ballard's midwifery practice to life and importantly um wove it in with experiences of broader cultural, political, and economic histories. And she also, um, it's kind of dated now, but she has a movie that she shows actually how she how she put together um, this, this very difficult social history. My advisor, Susan Klepp's book, Revolutionary Conceptions, Women, Fertility, and Family Limitation in America, and Rebecca Tannenbaum's book, The Healer's Calling, Women, Medicine, Women and Medicine in Early New England, these are both from 2009, also gave me some strategies for unearthing women's vernacular cultures. Again, these are often oral cultures of healing. Um, And meanwhile, some excellent books have come out on um, enslaved midwives in the American South and the Caribbean. But um, particularly at the time, I was puzzled that relatively relatively few scholars of British North America had followed in these historians' trail um, until I began my own archival work and, as you point out, discovered how difficult it really was to recover women healers' practices, um, particularly in archives um, whose collections often reflect male contributions to the, you know, quote, scientific progress or or national narratives. Um, uh, Women's recipe books, a few uh, archives do have these recipe books, but it's unclear. There may be a hundred or so out there for, for British North America for, for a couple centuries. Um, and it's hard to know how many were just thrown away or lost and, um, you know, that losing these, uh, you know, women's medical knowledge. Um, and again, so often these, you know, you have to go to historical societies that, that keep these places that that value this more antiquary, what would, would have been considered more antiquarian knowledge. Um, and just a footnote, there is a much stronger historiography of women healers um, for historians of Europe and Britain. And again, that I, I was able to really, you know, follow in their footsteps, but again, surprising that, uh, you know, historians of early America had not really picked that up. Um, so I worked in over thirty archives, libraries, and historical societies in the in the U.S. and the U.K. And um, fortunately, I did have fellowship funding to to fund these trips. Um, and I looked at medical recipe books, papers, material objects alongside newspapers, legal documents, herbals, uh, pharmaceutical dispensatories, city directories, local histories, scholarly medical books, popular self-help manuals, and I'm sure I can't even remember some of the the things that I looked at. And uh, the work was very archaeological. Um, It was like kind of digging around and finding pot sherds and trying to put together a pot. Um, And in my case, it was finding little pieces of information that I had to kind of put together to... uh, build a woman's life in practice. Um, and there were days of digging the archives where I really didn't find anything, and then uh, following leads that went to nowhere, and then days of great discoveries. You know, at first, I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to, you know, I, saw, I had Elizabeth Coates Pascal, and I thought, well, is she the only one out there? And uh, lo and behold, as I began digging, you know, the, the woods were full of them. There were lots of women healers. Um, And then of course I had to place healers in bigger contexts and actually then create narratives and narrative arcs, you know, to to write the book. And um, so I found that although their contributions to the healthcare labor force are relatively invisible, um, your American, Native American, and African American women have long served as essential medical workers in the Philadelphia area. Um, And of course, as the COVID pandemic has shown us, the majority of essential medical workers today are women so i guess i'll stop there but again it was very challenging but kind of a lot of fun as well
0: yes absolutely and uh, well it's not was not just uh, challenging but uh, extremely relevant and important to do this work because as you uh, as you show in your uh, in your book uh, these uh, these women were uh, key um <clears throat> key figures in their societies and provided uh, um Medical care, uh, essential services in uh, in uh, medical care for their uh, for their communities. But at the same time, it's quite difficult, uh, probably for uh, readers today, to um, have uh, a precise idea of uh, the kind of uh, um, healthcare providers that these women. Uh, uh, word, because uh, there is not exactly a professional figure that is comparable in the healthcare system as we know it uh, today. So uh, maybe could you mm, draw a kind of portrait of uh, the kind of uh, healers that uh, you uh, that you worked on in your uh, in your book?
1: Of course, and um, I love to talk about uh, these these healers and their uh, lives, uh, social. Uh, positions. And their work was very diverse. So my so there almost isn't really like one uh, portrait of of a woman healer in the greater Philadelphia at this time. So my book sketches a number of portraits. um, And if I get too long winded in this place, this is here, this is something I love to talk about. So you know, kind of you know, wink at me if I if I get too long-winded. Um, so women healers of various social orders, including women of color, worked as, you know, in a number of uh, practices, they worked as doctresses, which was the female equivalent of a doctor, apothecaries, bone setters, cancer specialists, midwives, eye specialists, herbalists, and nurses, to name a few. Um, and many, and this was in an unregulated medical marketplace. Anyone could um, just call themselves a doctoress, doctor or apothecary, um, there were not, you know, state regulations. Um, and many participated in an emerging capitalist marketplace by preparing and selling um, uh, patent medicines or peddling pharmaceuticals door to door. So, um, you know, again, women of various classes participated um, in very different spaces. Um, so, and, and you're right, this freewheeling medical marketplace is very different with, with these very few legal constrictions is very different from a different environment from ours in the 21st century, where we place healthcare workers in rigid categories uh, regulated uh, by the state licensure of physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, nurses, aides, uh, uh, pharmacists, uh, you know, physical therapists just you know on and on throughout the healthcare uh, spectrum and so in the past identities were much more fluid than they are today and that was you know something that I kind of learned as I began digging into the sources um, and my term women healers people often ask me what do you, you know what do you mean by women healers um, it construes healing in its broadest sense um, encompassing a spectrum of both paid and unpaid work um, and again this includes kind of a laundry list of diagnostic, prescriptive, therapeutic, pharmaceutical, obstetric, um, as well as nursing services. And women's practices could incorporate any combination of these categories, often changing over a course of a lifetime. And again, I do see women um, maybe starting as, as a healer who pra- you know provides medicines for free, then because of financial need. Um, starts, uh, you know, starts a paid practice. So there are a lot of a lot of movement, and it makes it hard to see, you know, what a healer is because Pascal is a merchant and she has an identity as a as a dry goods uh, salesperson, but she's also doing kind of, um, you know, like Walgreens Minute Clinic on the side in her um, in her in her shop. Um, so in each chapter of the book, I focus on one main healer and build networks of other healers and kind of nets of other healers around that woman. Um, so again, there's kind of a, a variety of portraits even within each chapter. Uh, so in eight loosely chronological chapters beginning in the late 17th century and continuing through the early 19th, I explore women's medical work and their various uh, and the various types of medical authority that they appropriated. Um, to counter attempts to marginalize their practice, so I kind of have, you know, I each chapter sort of features one portrait, kind of builds on it, and then focuses on one type of authority that women are using to to maintain um, their the legitimacy of their practices, um, and I actually kind of almost bookend front and back with the um, the founding of Philadelphia's female medical College this was the first women's medical school in the in the United States founded in, in 1850 um, and it was actually the first women's medical school in the world and the history of women practitioners um, of certainly the professionalization of women uh, practitioners often begins with this 1850 founding um, and in 1855 dr. Anne Preston who was one of the first graduates of the Medical School, who was now on the faculty, addressed the new incoming class and encouraged them um, as they embarked on what she called a new and untried course. And um, I argue that these students merely continued legacies of women who provided the bulk of health care for centuries. Um, So this new and untried course was really just a more obvious signpost on a well-trodden path populated by women practitioners. And so the book is really this backstory. And then I kind of bookend at the end with, um, you know, I think once you see the backstory, you can see that um, uh, the women who were practicing, uh, you know, starting medical school did have um, a lot of legacies uh, behind them. So as they settle, so kind of in chapter one, I look at how women who, uh, as they settled in the greater Philadelphia area, Anglo-American women built on the cultural authority and legacies of their foremothers' healing work in England. Um, And in chapter one, I highlight Guliama Springett Penn, who was the wife of Pennsylvania's founder William Penn, who is cited in a biography as being skilled in physic, medicine, or surgery. And um, Guliama Penn never. Made it to Pennsylvania, but her recipe book, her son brought her recipe book over to their home in, uh, called Pensbury Manor, and um, it's at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. So um, the material object of her recipe book uh, gave me a sense of you know, not only women were, were transiting across the Atlantic bringing cultures of um, authoritative healers, but the material culture of recipe books were bringing, uh, bringing these ideas along too. Um, And she also, like Pascal, kept a recipe book, medical recipe book, that maps her expert knowledge of what we would recognize as medicine, surgery, ophthalmology, pharmacy, and nursing. And uh, the manuscript has even deeper roots. It was passed down from her grandmother, Catherine Partridge Springett, who, according to one account, saw 20 patients in a morning and cared for long-term invalids at uh, no charge. And it's other parts of the source of the recipe book. And um, a biography written by her daughter suggests that her servants also provided some of this health care. So when we see elite women providing health care, we also need to think about, um, or, you know, servants um, in the, uh, in the Americas, enslaved people doing some of this work. And if elite women are hard to find, uh, those uh, folks are, are also particularly, can be particularly invisible. Um so patients, uh, also she was an ophthalmological specialist, and I kind of had to bring this out because I know you do the history of ophthalmology. And patients, <laughs> patients from distant counties sought spring skills in treating eye diseases. Um, and she was so proficient in cataract surgery that her daughter tells us Stevens, the great oculist, sent many to her house when there was difficulty of a cure. And it actually was not unusual for women to be ocular experts who prescribed medicines and couched cataracts cataracts. cataracts using a flat needle to displace the cloudy lens. And of course, they're using the same fine motor skills that they deployed in their decorative needlework. So it was kind of a a natural fit for them. Um, And I would love to, this was sort of something I discovered, I'd love to kind of follow up more on this early, early history of ophthalmology. and in, in the recipe book, there are hundreds of recipes for eye diseases. So clearly, uh, both these women were eye specialists. And um, importantly, women such as Springen and Penn, and later women pa- such as Pascal and others in the Americas, and um, in, in British North America, shared the same medical worldview as educated physicians and surgeons. Uh, their practices were very similar, and their writings uh also underscore their participation in the production of healing knowledge and um, an engagement with early modern science, um, and this is sort of a quick segue. But but Quakerism is really important uh, in the book, and along with her husband, Guillaume Penn, was instrumental in establishing this radical sect called the Society of Friends or Quakers. Um, and Quaker women um, conveyed to Pennsylvania along with their useful medical skills. They also um, brought over radical ideas about equality, female education, and public activism. Um, women Quaker ministers preached in public and traveled thousands of miles on ministerial tours a- around the Atlantic world, preaching, um, often leaving their husbands and children behind. Um, and these kinds of, oh, they're also, um, you know, uh, Quakers refuse to tip their hats to anyone, so they... they um, rejected professional hierarchies, which allowed them to uh, challenge learned physicians' uh, authority. And and again, this is way outside the bounds of what was normative at that time. You know, biblical and social precepts said that women should not speak in public. They should certainly not speak in church and never usurp the authority over a man. So... Um, Quaker, and I, I agree uh, with historians who argue that Quakers, even though Quakers numbers kind of diminished over time, um, these ideas uh, uh, informed the way that gender operated in the greater Philadelphia area. Um and one of these settlers was a woman named Beulah Jake Coates, who passed down, who came over and then passed down her healing knowledge to her daughter, Elizabeth Coates Paschal. So in Chapter 2, um, I used social network theories to analyze how Paschal became an authoritative node within her medical networks. And I think, um, as we saw a little bit in the expert um, excerpt that I gave from her, from her book, um, she was very much embedded in... Um, In uh, webs of medical healthcare exchanges, and uh, social network theory suggests that those, as you become an authoritative node in um, in these social networks, that you know you kind of accrue more and more authority. So I kind of look at that. Um, And her exchanges with Lenape healers also demonstrate that healing could be a site of of intercultural cooperation, as well. uh, You know, amid the the many conflicts between. European settlers and Native American groups. Um, So chapter three looks at um, indigenous women's healing work, which is um, really difficult to recover. and I, I focus on a woman named Hannah Freeman, who uh, the reason we actually even know about her is that she was called the last, quote, the last Lenape Indian in Chester County, Pennsylvania, uh, west of Philadelphia. And so it, there's sort of this um, kind of myth of of the vanishing Native American, where as they begin to vanish, then people remember, oh, wasn't that, you know, oh, that's a passing culture. Um, and, and in fact, uh, the Lenape's were dispossessed from Pennsylvania, um, there were um, some reservation lands uh, west, uh, east of Philadelphia in New Jersey, but um, her her story does map the the dispossession of of Native peoples in in Pennsylvania. However, it also tells us a little bit about cultural persistence. How she used her healing skills. She was um, described as a basket maker and a doctress, uh healer. Um, and, and so she used her medical skills as a subsistence strategy to remain on the lands, on her ancestral lands, so she was um, able to at least um, have some control over her, her choice of where to stay. And uh, healing was, was part of her cultural persistence. Um, I also look at one, one source for Native American women's healing are, uh, that you have to read very carefully are um, uh, natural philosophers, the scientists of the time, or missionaries and um, Peter Com, a Finnish uh, naturalist and John Heckwelder, who was a Moravian missionary, actually provide detailed information. Again, it was a matter of like just reading through their diaries and and narratives. Um, But I did find instances where they cited Native American women who either treated them successfully, or they they witnessed um, a a settler being treated successfully by a Native American woman. Of course, they were very interested in secret, they called them the secret Indian cures, and um, uh, learning those. So so again, I look at, at healing as a space of, um, you know, in, in a situation where where people's lives are at stake, often healing can be a space of, of temporary uh, collaboration across cultures. So um, that's, you know, again, very, very difficult, however, to get um, you know, to get at those women. Um, and in chapter four, I look at the authority of enlightenment science. Um, and I bring back Elizabeth Pascal, um, and looking at how women learn to wield this new authority and knowledge of enlightenment science and how that informed their practices. Um, and the rise of, of this new empirical science challenged the long standing preeminence of university degrees and ancient experts. And this was really a hands on observation, almost what we would consider sort of the scientific method where you observe, experiment, uh, create hypotheses. So this was actually accessible to people who were not university educated, artisanal people, um, as well as uh, Women of, of, of various social orders, um, and so again, women like Pascal were undeterred by male natural f- philosophers uh, who contended that women were innately too irrational to contribute to the you know the rational. They were too irrational and passionate to contribute to uh, science and medicine. Um, and in her recipe book, Pascal describes reading medical texts, engaging ex- in experimentation participating in natural philosophical societies. Um, so they're really authorizing themselves as producers of scientific knowledge. And, um, here I flip the traditional narrative of history, of the history of science as the kind of top-down history of science, and um, think about history from the bottom up. And, and so the lines between science and folk healing are blurrier, and the story includes uh, more historical actors, men and women of various ethnicities and social orders. Um, and as we know, European governments and universities uh, sent natural philosophers on what we might call bioprospecting missions to discover commercially valuable plants and minerals. And they've recognized Native Americans, peoples of African descent, and ordinary colonists as uh, critical sources of information about the natural world. Um, But of course, they also in the process over time tried to erase these uh, indigenous and um, African origins of, of critical illnesses as they began became part of the European uh, Materia Medica. Um, And by contrast, I find in women's recipe books well into the 19th century, um, women healers uh, continue to acknowledge um, indigenous origins of medications. Um, And in chapters five and six, I examined how the emergence of a male culture of market capitalism posed some additional potential barriers to women's traditional healing authority. However, I found that working class women, as well as elite women, took advantage of an emerging culture of medical consumerism to develop uh, these very successful entrepreneurial practices. And again, this was sort of one of the surprises of my research that, um, you know, women were kind of participating in this marketplace. Um, In Chapter 5, I feature Margaret Hill Morris, an elite widowed Quaker woman who had provided free care to her community uh, for years and years. But during the American Revolution, she faced financial reverses. uh, And so she opened a fee-for-service medical practice in her home in Burlington, New Jersey, across the river from Philadelphia. And she diagnosed, prescribed, compounded drugs, dispensed medicine, and provided nursing care. And she, with kind of a note of pride, says, you know, there's not a dose of medicine to be got in this town without coming to me for it. I feel quite alert at the thoughts of doing something that may set me a little above absolute dependence. And uh, she also mentions that she, at that time, was the only doctor in town. Um, Many uh, loyalist doctors had fled uh, to Canada. Um, Many uh, other doctors had joined the Continental Army. So women healers uh, really came to the fore during the Revolution. Um, and during the same period, Mary Waters, an artisanal woman during the occupation, British occupation of Philadelphia, uh, Mary Waters took over her deceased husband's Philadelphia apothecary practice. And in a newspaper uh, article, she notes that she could continue the practice because really she'd been the one doing all the work in the back room all the time. And um, Uh, advertisements became a really important source for me, and theoretically, like elite women's names are not supposed to be in print. I think, you know, the old adage of elite ladies is, you know, you can be at your birth, your wedding and your death are the only times, you know, that you should be in print. And you know, I found women, you know, advertising and part of um, this new consumer marketplace. Um, and and weed was so successful um, in her with marketing her weed syrup that um, a a healer and barber named James Craft, this crafty James Craft, counterfeited her proprietary drug weed syrup. Um, and so weed lambasts him in uh, this long advertisement, you know, calling him a violin bass counterfeiter and that he's endangering the health of citizens with this counterfeit medicine. And she actually took him to court um, to maintain her intellectual property. And this, this was actually, she was not Unique in this, there were women who had these proprietary medicines who really had a sense um, that this was their intellectual property. Even though, of course, women weren't supposed to have an intellectual life or you know be too irrational to do anything like this. Um, so uh, another uh, another uh, woman of more of the the laboring orders was a woman named Mary Waters. She was an impoverished Irish immigrant um, who learned healing skills in her work as a nurse in the Continental Army. And she used her contact with military physicians, like uh, the very famed and prominent Dr. Benjamin Rush of Philadelphia, um, to to launch a very successful practice as a doctoress, nurse, and apothecary um, in the early republic. She also advertised her proprietary worm cakes that were for intestinal worms. And, you know, again, this advertising was a space that I was able to discover women's entrepreneurship. Um, So medical consumerism, along with this profusion of self-help printed works, weakened physicians hegemony and empowered women healers. And um, I would argue that their economic successes attest to these women's ongoing medical authority. Um, In Chapter 7, we're almost there, (laughs) Chapter 7, I look at how Black nurses, despite racialized recriminations, risked their lives um, to provide vital nursing care for white Philadelphians during the devastating 1793 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, Um, and they deployed the authority of humanitarian healing to demonstrate African Americans worthiness for citizenship so this was um, kind of politicized nursing you know using healing um, to uh, to advance um, a, a political agenda for a, a very needed political agenda for African Americans and um, importantly nursing at the time was a very undesirable uh, undesirable work it was way below domestic uh, domestic service it was associated with drunkenness theft, and prostitution. Nurses were the lowest of the low. And um, these nurses from Philadelphia's Free African Society reframed um, African-American, you know, their, their health care work as an act of benevolent civic virtue. And this was 60 years before Florence Nightingale, you know, the famed Florence Nightingale founder of nursing, introduced to a global audience the notion of nursing as a humanitarian pursuit for, you know, White middle-class ladies um, in her work during the Crimean War, um, and so this was actually a very significant moment where um, Nightingale said nursing is an art, and um, there the leaders of the Free African Society also prior to Nightingale said, you know, nursing is an art, and it's it's a humanitarian art, and uh, you know, really emphasizing the humanity of Black people that was often, you know often demigrated um, and you know and here again we have a precedent for women of color working risking their lives uh, to work as essential workers during a pandemic that you know we've certainly seen in covid um, and in, in my final chapter in chapter eight um i look at how a powerful discourse of domesticity sought to relegate women to the private household sphere you know safe from the you know the worries and cares of the business world and i almost think that um this culture of domesticity was even more constricting for women uh, than even the professionalization of medicine. However, you know, there's sort of a difference between what prescriptive w- literature is telling women to do and what they actually do. Um, so your american and African-American women continued to pursue medical entre- entrepreneurship. They learned science and women ac- women's academies that were flourishing at the time. And to become practitioners in um, non-traditional movements such as homeopathy, Thompsonianism, um, and hydropathy, or the water cure. Many became public health educators and leaders in health reform organizations. And um, I would argue that it was no accident that the first women's medical school in the world was founded in Philadelphia, um, because Philadelphia had, you know, women in Philadelphia had supported um, this robust culture of women's healthcare work for almost 200 years. So that was, that was pretty long-winded, but, you know, when you say Talk about women. Talk about your women healers. You know that that gets me going. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely, I, I believe it was it, it was probably the best the best way to for our audience to uh, to have uh, a, an overview to the uh, really rich uh, um, kind of uh, personalities uh, that uh, that you describe in your book, not just as in individual uh, female healers, but also. As uh, so you, you you talked about uh, women belonging to very different social background, ethnical background, uh, and uh, uh, really um, gaining having uh, um, acquiring knowledge and uh, skills uh, not just uh, in uh, healing but also uh, well these were proficient business uh, persons that managed to navigate very uh a very complicated uh, uh, economic situations due to the development of capitalism uh, the situation in of a country in uh, 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 facing uh, facing a, a, a war uh, and uh, and also uh, something that really fascinated in your book uh, in is uh, the fact that uh, um, well how this uh, these women uh, were uh, mm, Facing uh, the um, process of uh, uh, professionalization of uh, of medicine as a discipline, uh, uh, well, uh, exclusively masculine and uh, institutionalized in uh, uh, universities and uh, uh, professional associations that were conveying a a discourse that excluded women from. from the profession so something that is uh, really uh, that that i, I would la- like you to, to, to ask you is uh, what uh, uh, it, it is how ma- did the, these women manage to face uh, to confront to this uh, surge of uh, a new uh, set of uh, regulation decided by men uh, about the medical profession
1: that's a great question, and um, I, I think um, one thing is that, and this is probably, I think this is different in um, in continental Europe and Britain, um, in America there was an unregulated medical marketplace well into the 19th century. A few states did try to put forth um, medical licensure, and it was not well enforced. So we sort of continued with this freewheeling marketplace. Um, So, uh, you know, I think the current historiography, I I think for those of us um, who grew up in like, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, where uh, physicians were sort of like gods, you know, you just didn't question them. There was sort of that, you know, feeling that, you know physicians positions were everything. And I think, um, I I, I sense that younger people, uh, we almost have this very, uh, our our own marketplace is is a lot more diverse with people, you know, you might go to a doctor, or you might go, uh, he didn't work, I'm going to an acupuncturist, I'm going to a holistic, you know, doctor, you you know, there's a Chinese practitioner that that's really cool that I've used. So I almost feel like we're now more back to kind of this, you know, diverse medical marketplace where Western medicine, you know, still holds quite a bit of authority and sway, but maybe um, not like it did uh, back in say the 50s and 60s. And I think, medical historians from that time looking back were sort of looking to see how did doctors, you know, become gods. And the newer historiography indicates that really it's the late 19th century before physicians actually uh, get that medical hegemony um, in the U.S. And uh, perhaps even in the 1920s when medicine moves out of domestic spaces where, you know, women are still, even with physicians, mediating what's going on in healthcare and moves into hospitals where that real control, you know, where you can walk into a hospital, they pull off your clothes and you're in a hospital gown, you know, that there's there's that institutional control. But but that being said, physicians did, um, did exert an aura of power. Um, they did create the infrastructures of medical societies, of, you know, medical journals, um, places that did um, exclude women. Um, and they did gain a following, Particularly of um, you know middling uh, Philadelphians, um, many kind of talked about having my family sort of proprietary my family physicians, um, you know. And there's always that issue of midwives versus obstetricians. Man, midwives did, um, you know, enter the birthing room and exert power there. Um, but even then, I I, I kind of try. There's sort of that um, older narrative of um, you know women healers as sort of the you know, the hero, heroines who are doomed to fail and the physicians are sort of the, you know, the evil uh, people. And, you know, I mean, there's plenty of victimization to go around in history. So there, that, that is always there, but I, I did find midwives, um, continued uh, respected practices, particularly outside of the city of Philadelphia, as well as city directors indicate that there were an increasing number um, in the late 19th century. Um, And actually, Philadelphia's kind of unique situation, physicians in this, you know, putative city of brotherly love had been fractured since the founding of Pennsylvania's first medical school in 1765. This was the first medical school in British North America. And this prevented doctors from creating this hegemonic pres- uh, uh, presence in, 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 the, in the city. Um, these erstwhile friends um, and colleagues, John Morgan and Dr. John, uh, Dr. William Shippen, had battled over the prestige of who had really founded the medical school um, with Morgan winning the title. And this conflict re-erupted during the American Revolution where these guys got into this um, amazing uh, vituperative uh Uh, pamphlet battle, pamphlet war, which, again, people are going, you know, we're in the middle of a revolution. You know, stop it, you guys. And this reemerges, these same factions reemerged during the 1793 yellow fever epidemic. And again, newspaper editors are saying, you know, it's bad enough without you guys fighting and confusing the public. So, I mean, literally, uh, you know, sort of like going, you know, this is not, you know, they needed a lesson in like hegemony, you know, Gramscian hegemony 101. You know, this was not the way to do it um and and in addition, as this is sort of a, a, a another kind of historiography is as hands on anatomical training became kind of the marker of, of an elite medical physician, of course, they had to have um, they had to have cadavers so wherever there was a medical school when Jefferson Medical School came in in Philadelphia um, in in the early 19th century there was fears that the medical students were robbing graves and indeed some of them were and um, uh, after Dr. Shippen died who he had um, like a medical uh, he had a dissection theater on the grounds of the dissection theater a corpse was found and of course African Americans in Philadelphia were particularly concerned their bodies were often and, uh, you know, used as uh, abused in medical experimentation. So, um, you know, there medical students at the time were not in the early 19th century. Even one medical student at the University of Pennsylvania was like, we weren't really held in very high esteem. And then in the early 19th century, doctors faced additional challenges from what they called um, sectarian movements, um, uh, homeopathy, um, Thomsonian botanical healers, eclectics posed challenges, were challenging what they call, they call themselves the regular physicians and these others were the kind of, you know, sectarian physicians. And so male physicians were almost had their hands full, you know, battling their own reputations um, and other male physicians. Now, women actually did participate in some of these, um, you know, water cure and, and homeopathy, but, you know, they sort of had their hands full trying to build their reputation. So, um, you know, and I think the histori- historiography sort of caught up with this, that, that um, they, they were less in charge, you know, their, their literature would suggest that they were, you know, they, they had it all together, but particularly in Philadelphia, um, the, the medical community did gain respect, they gained respect as public health arbiters, but there were also beneath percolating were lots of challenges.
0: Yes, thank you. And this this actually, uh, uh, an aspect that is uh, really fascinating in your work is, uh, well, on the one hand, uh, the different ways in which uh, authority can be uh, built in terms of how uh, uh, a uh, healer become, uh, becomes a trusted healer because uh, he or she has a university degree or because uh, he or she just uh, Good at uh, his or her job, uh, and uh, patients can uh, can uh, uh, witness the the the, uh, the skills of this, of uh, these persons, and uh, uh, and so on. And also uh, from the viewpoint of of a historian, uh, something that uh, that your work shows really well. It's not just uh, the power of a narrative that is. Uh, uh, written by uh, male physicians, but uh, how this narrative uh, uh, can become uh, uh, like uh, endorsed by historian and uh, uh, can be presented as uh, uh, so things have always uh, happened this way. So physicians have always been masculine, and uh, yes, there were maybe female like uh, uh, healers, but uh, they were not so. Uh, so uh, important nor uh, nor uh, skilled and uh, uh, well it, it's uh, once again as, as you say there is a lot of work to do to kind of uh, re uh, set things straight and uh, make uh, sure that uh, this uh, these women who at their uh, their time were such a prominent central figures in their in, in their uh, community in communities uh, to be acknowledged uh, as such uh, today by uh, by uh, historians and not like just of uh, uh, side topic, uh, which is not uh, central for the history of uh, of uh, medicine. And uh, well, uh, one last question I would like to, to ask you, it's about uh, well, uh, what kind of uh, legacy can we um, uh, like uh, recognize this women have left. Besides, uh, you said, uh, uh, well, the legacy that can be acknowledged in uh, the uh, medical school uh, of, uh, for women in Philadelphia that, uh, that you mentioned, um, it, it is possible for uh, to, uh, uh, I don't know, for example, in the field of uh, uh, advocacy for uh, equality, gender equality, or access to the voting rights or civil rights. Uh, it is a bit of a stretch to draw a line between these uh, women and uh, fem- and activists. Or uh, it is possible to make uh, to uh, to spot a legacy in this uh, in this sense. Yes,
1: and um, actually, it, it it is easy to make connections. Um, I think that um, historians have long recognized Quaker women in the Philadelphia area as leaders in the abolition movement and women's suffrage movements, and um, interestingly, health reform movements were very much intertwined. Um, the same people who were interested in um, in abolition and uh, you know women's suffrage and women's rights. We're also starting this medical school, and Preston, um, Hannah Longshore, two of the early graduates were also uh, abolitionists, their family were abolitionists. Um, they were interested in uh, women's suffrage. They were activists there. So um, this the activism um, that was part of women's rights, I think these women, as, as we understand that uh, health and women's health um, are part of kind of a human rights and civil rights, these women did recognize it. And the same women who um, were involved um, in in creating the medical school and and uh, in healthcare reform uh, were interested in other in other activisms. It blended very seamlessly at that time. And a lot of women, not only in the Philadelphia area, were involved in uh, health reform as, as well as women's rights. Um, and I think uh, Sarah Maps Douglas uh, was a Black woman in Philadelphia who, um, who became the first African-American woman to attend the female medical college. Um, she was this amazing activist that intertwined healthcare. She was a health educator. She started school. She was principal of school, an educator, um, and and also uh, worked in what we would view as an early civil rights movement. Um, I, I think she never completed her education because she had, that would have been so focused, she just had so much else going on. But she also considered um, the health of her community as part of, of a civil rights community. Um, so I think there are a lot of legacies. The second woman to grad, black woman to graduate from a, a medical school, graduated from a um, from the Women's Medical College, Um, one of the first Native American uh, women, that was uh, Rebecca Rebecca J. Cole, let me say their names, Um, and Susan LaFleche-Picot in the 1880s uh, was the first Native American woman to graduate from medical school and that was from the Women's Medical College. Um, And I think there there are also other, you know, we sort of have a professionalization legacy, but there are are ongoing legacies of lay women healers that continued practicing. Um, There was a Lenape healer, Elizabeth Harker Elmer, who um, exemplifies Native American women who continued to provide healthcare in their community. And she was recognized um, as both a community leader and a healer um, in her community in Bridgetown, New Jersey. Um, there were women who continued as lay healers in their communities, um, in Pennsylvania into the 19th century. Uh, one thing I didn't get to talk about are, uh, German American women were a big presence in Philadelphia and they had a special, um, it was almost kind of a spiritual as well as herbal healing called brochure, Bracheri Bracheri. um, and they, uh, you know, they practice and, and that practice continues their lay healers um, of this specific German-American practice today. So so I think they're, they're legacies of both professionalization and of kind of ongoing beneath the radar and sometimes not so beneath the radar radar of um, of vernacular and lay healing.
0: Thank you. Fascinating uh, topic and uh, and uh, fascinating conversation that uh, that uh, well, that I would like to conclude honestly, asking you, you, what, if you can uh, talk uh, about it. Uh, what are you working on today? What is uh, if there is a a, a, pro, a project that uh, uh, that is uh, uh, of your interest right uh, right now?
1: Uh, yes, I have kind of an interest that comes out of a conference paper that I wrote. Um, I kept finding in, in advertisements and in women's recipe books, um, a, a pharmaceutical called tar water. And it really is like kind of pine tar resin that was sort of this universal panacea. Um, and it was, it was actually, it, it, there was this, um, very famous Anglo-Irish bishop called, um, George Berkeley that came to, uh, came to New England in the 1720s to start a a Native American school. And meanwhile, he met Narragansett Indians who introduced him to this tar water. He brought it back to England, wrote um, sort of his magnum opus. It was this philosophical, it was called Cirrus, A Chain of Philosophical Reflections and Inquiries Concerning the Virtue of Tar Water in 1744. But instead of sort of launching his philosophy, um, he initiated a mass marketing of this popular consumer pharmaceutical that was supposed to cure all all ills called tar water. And then tar water travels back to North America, um, where uh, gentlemen of science like uh, Benjamin Franklin, Cadwater Colden are, are writing about it and kind of using it to say, you know, America is sub- exceptional. Our We need our medicines as part of, you know, th- th- that's critical in, in, in scientific pursuits. And again, it's also all over the place in women's recipe books. So I'm thinking for my next project of, of, of Seeing what, you know, would there be um, a, a yield in terms of looking at uh, pharmaceuticals as material objects traveling around the Atlantic world, um, you know, and just sort of changing my methodology and just seeing if methodologically um, what that tells us about um you know the exchange, uh, the diffusion of medical knowledge, the diffusion of medical authority, and, and again this sort of moment where uh, people begin to feel that health is something that money can buy, that it's a commodity.
0: Fascinating topic. I, I'm sure that our listeners can can't wait to uh, to learn more about this uh, and uh, well and to read in the first place uh, your your work on women's uh, women's healer. Uh, Thank you so much once again, uh, uh, Dr. Brett, for your uh, for being with us uh, with us uh, today and for sharing uh, your your uh, knowledge and uh, your uh, for summarizing and discussing uh, your uh, your work with for our uh, listeners. And uh, uh, well, good uh, good luck with with your ongoing uh, project.
1: Thank you so much. And again, thank you for having me on New New Books Network. I, I really enjoyed it.